2: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind the headlines. I'm Nathan Connolly.
1: I'm Brian Ballow. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Joanne Freeman.
2: If you're new to the
3: podcast, Well, you're just in time, for the last episode, that is.
4: After more than 12 years on your public radio airwaves and podcasting platforms, Backstory is coming to an end.
2: And since we're a show that explores different aspects of American history, we thought there's no better topic for today's episode than a history of finales.
1: So, on this final episode of Backstory... We're going to look at different kinds of finales throughout American history.
4: We'll consider the end of some legendary political careers and how presidential finales weren't always a
3: given.
2: We'll look at how social movements also come to ends and sometimes don't.
3: And we're going to talk to University of Virginia men's basketball coach Tony Bennett to discuss the power of sports and how a big game can serve as a finale, whether you win or lose.
4: Now, if you're anything like me, when you hear the word finale, the first thing you think of is, well, television. (laughs) So that's exactly where we're going to start, with the boob tube. After all, television finales, from Seinfeld to The Sopranos, have become cultural touchstones. They're major television events that are debated for weeks, months, and sometimes even years later. But television finales weren't always the norm. In the early days of television, shows just kind of disappeared.
5: So you have to know you're gonna end in order to have a finale.
4: Jennifer Cation Armstrong is the author of several books about television. And she says there was a time when popular series like Gilligan's Island simply went off the air
3: without any sort of conclusion. Hold on a second, Ed. Are you saying that Gilligan is still on that darn island? It's quite possible, Brian, even
4: though I'm thinking that Professor was not only quite attractive, but also quite sharp. I like to think he (laughs) got him off the island. But yes, Brian, you may be right. There was no finale for Gilligan's Island or many other shows like it, so he may still be there. Now, Jennifer says a lot of this had to do with technology. Shows like Gilligan's Island were standalone episodes, each one a little gem of sitcom perfection. (laughs) You didn't have to be a regular viewer to understand what was going on. That's because without a way for people to record their favorite show, TV execs couldn't guarantee that viewers would be able to catch every single episode. This started to change in the 1960s as some serialized dramas entered the television scene. But some of the most memorable finales, shows like M.A.S.H. or The Mary Tyler Moore Show, were comedies, not dramas. So I asked Jennifer, When did finales for popular sitcoms become the norm?
5: I might be a little bit biased here because I wrote a book about the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yeah. So I want to call it roughly around that time in the 70s. There was this wave of making what I would call essentially serious sitcoms. There were a few forerunners to this idea that that weren't as popular, that you you could kind of take the sitcom format and inject some sense of seriousness into it. And I would guess that that was something to do with, you know, late sixties national mood. And so they started to have where, yes, we could laugh a little bit, but they're also addressing issues. And I think with that taking sitcoms a little more seriously, we start to get into this idea that you might be interested in its finale. And in the case of the Mary Tyler Moore show, they from day one all the way through to the end really were into having like creative control over their show. And it was produced by Mary's production company overseen by her husband, Grant Tinker at the time. And he was a real pioneer in kind of this idea of taking TV seriously. And they really decided together, all of the people at the top of that production decided going into their seventh season that it was going to be the end. And that was New too, like it was very unheard of to say word word declaring like we they could stay in business as long as they can make money right that was usually the way it worked and often still is sometimes still is but in this case it was very unusual for them to say like we've decided it feels right now is the time because we can see as artists that we are running out of things to say with the show and we want to end it properly
4: and Mary Tyler Moore was still really popular when it went out right.
5: Exactly. And this is where we start to get into this idea of going out on a high note. As you go forward in history, I mean, lots of creators will talk about this as you go forward, like the almost anxiety of like figuring out in the exact right time. I remember talking to Michael Patrick King, who was the executive producer of Sex in the City and him saying like, his nightmare was to end up on one of those lists that says like, why is this show still on? And so you start to kind of want to, at that exact moment where you're not leaving too much on the table, but you, you know, people still care and you can make a real statement with your finale.
4: And it seemed Mary Tyler Moore show really did that. The other one I remember being a huge event at the time was MASH. Can you talk about that a little bit? How did that relate to the trajectory we saw on the Mary Tyler Moore show, if at all?
5: Yeah, it's, I think, I feel like those two are kind of of a piece, I would say. I'd throw in MASH with that and the Norman Lear shows, kind of all those serious sitcoms, essentially. And yeah, so MASH was very similar in that. It was very popular, but it was also recognized as, as an artistic statement. And um, I think that's a really interesting one and very similar in a way to the Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, you know, the Mary Tyler Moore show ends with the state, the TV station she works at being sold, and all of the characters we know basically losing their jobs except...
4: It's just hilarious.
5: Except Ted Baxter, the one they've always made fun of, right? So it's a natural end point and goodbye point in human life that is reflecting what we're doing on the show, which is saying goodbye to the show. And um, MASH was similar. It was also a workplace comedy, as it turned out. You wouldn't think of both of these as basically the same format, but they are. And... um, War ends, turns out, uh, you know, this was technically, I would say technically, because it, you people sort of tend to remember this as set in the Vietnam War, but it was set in the Korean War and a commentary on the Vietnam War. And, you know, they couldn't do that forever. So that they actually have it just end with the end of the war. And I think that's also a really interesting one, because obviously, none of us grieve the end of any war. But it is a funny moment where you can see that the pe- if you had spent all this time with people like they did in a war and saying goodbye is still sad, even if it's like, yay, I get to go home and it's the end of the war and we were sad with them.
4: So Mary Tyler Moore is 77, MASH is 83. Uh, when is it that the VCR tape appears and that people can record shows?
5: I mean, that's, I think that that's right around, um, you know, we're getting into it in the eighties and, um, I actually wonder, I don't even know if it's ever a factor like VCRs in finales per se. I would say weekly viewing, you know, where you would start to realize like, Oh, I can record cheers. That means I can stay up on cheers, even if I go out on a Thursday night. But I think that, this was still a time that you would really want and it's even still to some extent true to this day, even with all of our crazy technology now, that if it was a big enough show, you would want to watch the finale with everyone because that's, yeah. like, everyone was going to watch it and then come into work the next day and talk about it. Like, the Seinfeld finale is a great example. That's not till the late 90s. But um, I would say even something like the Cheers finale, even if it's, like, of course, the, everything that happens is exactly what you think is going to happen. Um, you just want to be part of that moment, and that's why finales become so important to television because it's the it's one of the few times. As recording technology becomes more prevalent, right. I think that that finales become the one time people treat it a little bit like sports.
4: Yeah, appointment television, right? right? It's called right. Yeah. Now, you made the controversial statement about Seinfeld. <laughs> and, uh, so w- w- let's just walk right into that because we're not afraid. All right. Of-
5: I, I'm a pro on this one, so I can handle it.
4: <laughs> well, I'd have to say, you know, in the moment, I recall people thinking it was disappointing. And so mm-hmm. when we were talking about doing this this conversation, I thought, well, gee, you know, that was s- somehow let, let things down. But in preparation, we went and watched it again, and it's darn good. So a- am I right in remembering that people at the time were a little critical of it?
5: Oh my goodness, that is a vast understatement. I mean, <laughs> it is it's hilarious by modern times for a bunch of reasons. One of which just is like given our news cycles right now, to see the way people were freaking out <laughs> about this stupid finale is hilarious. It was a good we were having good times back in the late nineties when we could get this worked up about uh sitcom finale. People were angry at that finale. And I have a very similar reaction to you. So I wrote a book about Seinfeld. You know, I have an entire chapter in the book about the hype leading up to the finale, the way that you know there were like paparazzi trying to scale the walls at the studio to get a glimpse of what might happen you know, they were shredding scripts every night. You would have to, if to leave the lot, they would take your script and shred it and make new scripts the next day. So nothing got out. Like this was the level. And it was one of these two hour extravaganzas and people were so angry. And I, when I revisited, I had very similar experience. Like I loved it. I think it is a piece of art that stands on its own. I think it makes a statement I really admire when at least they try to do something interesting. And certainly Larry David, who came back to write the finale of Seinfeld, he had left the show for a while, but he came back to do this. Um, he is known for making statements. He did it with this. It feels very of a piece with his vision. And it's dark. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like it's a, And I think that's why people were angry. Probably why they were angry in the very pleasant late 90s. Um, because it's a pretty existential type statement, like I have made the argument that it has strands of like Sartre and like you know it's a very like no exit kind yeah. of statement that to me, the statement is these four people are stuck with each other, they're all kind of terrible. nothing changes right. like the joke of the finale is that they're in a jail cell at the end together and Jerry and George start having the, a conversation about the button placement on a shirt that is the exact same conversation that they started the entire series with.
4: Oh. I, I, and, I noticed the, the button conversation, but I didn't realize, and and the final line is, didn't we talk about this before? But I didn't realize that they That's had. why.
5: Oh. That's why. And oh. then there's this beautiful, as they have that conversation, there's a tracking shot out away from them that just shows them like shrinking in the frame. So, I love it. I think it's great, but it does start I would say in some ways it starts this era probably con- you know make sense that it's concurrent with what we call the golden age of television in the 2000s and beyond. Kind of starts this era of like the statement finale, you know, where where a lot of s- finales make fans angry, but it kind of feels like the creators are thinking we'd rather try for something and at least it gets them talking.
4: So perhaps you've given us a a hint. uh, If you had to choose a favorite finale, what would it be?
5: I actually think it's the Mary Tyler Moore show. What I actually really love about the Mary Tyler Moore show is its simplicity. Like we were talking about it, it, they made it look easy. It seems like an obvious choice, but I think that's the whole point of the Mary Tyler Moore show. It's always so beautifully made from start to finish. And this is another example of like, they can really tap into the characters and the emotion of, of everything. And they saw here, oh, we're saying goodbye to these characters. So those char- the characters should say goodbye to each other. And the reason that that's a famous finale is that one iconic scene where, they're all saying goodbye in the newsroom and they do a group hug and they cry together and they realize, and so you're crying with them at this point, but then they immediately undercut it with a joke, which is they realize that they need Kleenex and it's too far away for anyone to reach. So they like skitter as an entire group hug to the desk where the Kleenex is. And that's iconic. And that's because it's like everything about this show in one moment. And it's also so simple and they also made you feel what the characters were feeling. And you guys were, you know, you're mirroring them constantly. You're saying goodbye. They're saying goodbye. And then the last scene is that she walks out of the um, newsroom and she turns out the lights and like, I'm still getting choked up thinking about it, which is ridiculous you know and it's so well done and it's so simple and it's the gold standard and if you watch bad finales which of which there are plenty, you see how how well done this is because this just resisted every temptation. they didn't marry her off. they didn't have some kind of big happy ending. they didn't you know, they didn't show you 17 years into the future and 27 years into the future. they just said like, These people are saying goodbye now, goodbye, and they let it alone. And to me, they know big gimmicks, no big tricks, and that is why I love it, but it's very hard to do.
4: Jennifer Cation Armstrong is the author of several books, including Seinfeldia, how her show about nothing changed everything. She's also written the history of The Mary Tyler Moore Show.
1: Now, I never thought I'd get to say this, but we're gonna go from the Mary Tyler Moore show to the George Washington show. Now, bear with me. (laughs) (laughs) I I promise you I'm gonna take you somewhere good. Like television finales, the finales of a particular president and their administration wasn't always a given. That tradition had to start too. And it started with, not a big surprise, George Washington.
6: So much of what Washington did was to fill out the nooks and crannies of the presidency that most people hadn't even really thought about.
1: Lindsay Chervinsky is a presidential historian.
6: Article two is, is relatively short. There's very little written down. And so the day-to-day acts of governing were all sort of to be decided. And he had to really figure out what those were going to look like once he was in office. And of course, leaving office is a huge part of that because until he had done so, there really wasn't a history of peaceful transition of power.
1: Lindsay says Washington thought a lot about what that transfer of power should look like. Or, in other words, the best way for the George Washington show to end.
6: Typically in Europe, when there was a transition of power, it was because someone had died or someone had lost their head. And that was obviously not the model they were going for. And so he was very attentive that this process had to happen while he was alive in order to set a precedent for what that would look like for there being another election while the current president was still alive and in office for how that sort of transition would work and the respect that would transition from one person to the next, or in some cases not, (laughs) as depending on who was in (laughs) office. And um, so he he was very thoughtful about those details. And while he didn't usually publish all that much in the newspaper. He wasn't constantly writing things and having them, you know, submitted anonymously. He felt like this was an opportunity that he could speak to the American people directly and explain why this moment was so important and then also try and kind of convince them of the things that he felt were going to be key issues going forward. So what does he decide to do in saying farewell? Well, he, he makes a couple of decisions. First, he announces uh, significantly ahead of time so that there is it is not a surprise to anyone when the election comes up and there's sort of time for people to process this transition. He then takes the opportunity to sort of directly address the American people about what he sees are their strengths and also the potential challenges the nation had going forward. And that's very unusual for him because he, of course, had given his, you know, sort of inaugural addresses where he was speaking to Congress, but that was really speaking to Congress. And he, he very rarely had the opportunity to speak directly to the American people.
1: So, Lindsay, describe for us What the farewell address was, how long is it, you know, basically, what is it saying?
6: Sure. So the farewell address was basically a letter that George Washington wrote to the American people. And it was published on September 19th, 1796. So the last fall, Washington was in office. And it was basically his way of saying publicly to the American people, I am retiring, I am not accepting a nomination again. And then an opportunity for him to share what he felt were sort of the strengths of his time in office, as well as the challenges that still face the nation. So most famously, he warns against partisan or sectional divisions. He really is trying to encourage the American people to see what they have in common, to embrace those bonds and to see themselves as Americans and not as Virginians or New Yorkers or South Carolinians. His other big warning is against sort of any sort of foreign involvements. There was a lot of pro-British sentiment and a lot of pro-French sentiment in the United States, and it was causing people to really want to side with those European powers as opposed to their fellow countrymen. And so that was something that Washington was very concerned about and wanted people to avoid any sort of foreign entanglement as opposed to, you know, a national consensus. Um, what's really fascinating about the Farewell Address is that Washington first started drafting it actually in 1792 when he was first thinking about retiring. And he asked James Madison to come up with a draft at that point. And then he used several of those passages in his 1796 version, which he handed over to Alexander Hamilton to sort of revise and and uh, resubmit in, in 1796.
1: So he publishes this in the newspaper. Does he actually speak the address
6: out loud? No, no. He was not particularly comfortable with public speaking, um, probably because he didn't have teeth and so he <laughs> had <a> problem. <laughs> <laughs> so he had, you know, a series of kind of uncomfortable dentures. And so he just really wasn't comfortable with public speaking. And that would have frankly reached far fewer people because there wasn't a medium like radio or television or the internet to convey that message. So by publishing it in the newspaper, he was actually reaching the maximum number of readers that he could find. So now, how did people
1: respond?
6: Well, I think a lot of people were very, um, I don't know if sad is the right word, but they were concerned about him leaving office. They were concerned about what would happen afterwards because he had such unparalleled stature, even still in 1796, after he had been criticized by a lot of Republicans. There were certainly some, like Thomas Jefferson, who in his letters sort of was frustrated at the illusions that the Republican Party had, you know, caused these divisions in the country. And and he felt like it was unfair and there were people who were defensive about it. Um, But I think a lot of people really appreciated the moment and they appreciated the message that he was saying. Um, And certainly, I think it has stood the test of time in terms of history. I know it's still taught in a lot of history classes. And many of the issues that he raised in terms of foreign intervention and sectional conflict, those are obviously still things we're dealing with today. Absolutely. Now,
1: you talked about the way in which in method, this is something different for him, but. You know, if we, this this episode of Backstory that we're doing is about finales and being a child of the 70s, I just somehow think of famous TV shows that ended in the 1970s, <laughs> which naturally led me to think of Washington's presidency as the George Washington show. So would you say that the finale, George Washington's finale, was a fitting finale for the George Washington show? Does it sort of follow from what he did or does it really seem in message, like something apart.
6: I think it's really consistent. It's certainly not a shocker or a cliffhanger like The Sopranos or, you know, something that's totally nonsensical like Lost, Um, but uh, (laughs) um, or something that, like, completely destroys the entire show, like How I Met Your Mother, which I'm still angry about to this day.
1: Oh, Lizzie, you're making me so happy.
6: (laughs) (laughs) They, oh, that show made, oh, I I love that show, and it just got destroyed by the finale. So he did not do that. So props to him for not destroying his reputation. Um, I think it's very consistent because it is thoughtful. It is very aware of the precedent that it is setting. It is very aware of the future of the nation and how the nation is going to survive without him, which were constant concerns on his mind and, and his sort of constant effort to keep the country together, which had really been his life's work since 1775.
1: Let's talk for a minute, though. We, we talked about precedent-setting in all kinds of ways, right? Washington, the precedent-setter. So here's the question. If we think about other, quote-unquote, founder presidents, right, Adams and Jefferson and Madison and Monroe, do they adopt any part of that precedent when they bid farewell?
6: Well, in some ways, that's, that's kind of the surprising part, is his immediate successors don't really adopt this precedent. I mean, John Adams sort of notoriously... I mean, I, I love him, and the Adams family is such i they're very close to my heart, but he kind of There's you know skulks coming, yes. <laughs> he skulks out of d c and you know is so annoyed that he lost that he just can't even handle it, and he leaves before Jefferson is inaugurated, so he doesn't really have this glorious finish, and I think that after that, there was this sense that maybe a farewell address because it wasn't the first might be sort of ostentatious. I mean, certainly the presidents gave their inaugural address and their final ones had sort of this ring to it in that they were wrapping up their sense of their time in office and their administration. But it wasn't until a little bit later where I think there were big turnover moments where we start to see some of these addresses that are sort of speaking to the American people.
1: Now, let's let's step back more broadly and just talk about presidential or political finales more broadly. Are there some that stand out to you when you take the long historian view?
6: Well, John Quincy Adams, of course, had a, you know, a sort of quiet exit from the presidency, just like his father. He left while before Andrew Jackson was uh inaugurated. But then I think he had one of the most dramatic exits from public life because he, of course, had a stroke on the floor of the House of Representatives while giving a speech and was carried to the Speaker's Chambers and died in the Speaker's Chambers. So he died loving and doing what he loved best, uh, which was arguing with people in Congress. And so I think that's perhaps one of the most dramatic exits. You know, more recently, so we think about some, a president like Jimmy Carter, who, when he left office, his reputation was, fairly, frankly, pretty low, and since then has done such incredible humanitarian work and community-building work that he's actually considered sort of one of the best, quote-unquote, post-presidents because he's been such a devoted public servant in a much more quiet way. Absolutely. So given where our
1: conversation has taken us thus far, what do you think makes for a, a memorable Finale, if you're talking to a president and saying, "Okay, here's what you got to keep in mind for a a finale that will work, what might you say?
6: I think generally uh, political activity or, you know, sort of pettiness is not rewarded uh, in the (laughs) historical memory. Um, Sort of trying to rise above is... Is considered, you know, what is best, even if that's frustrating and not necessarily saying that they couldn't give advice to the American people, but or, you know, sharing with them what they feel are their concerns. But, you know, not not trashing the person that's coming before them is is generally a good rule of thumb. Of course, that's easier said than done because a lot of people really criticized, you know, they criticized Obama for not criticizing Trump more. When and you know trying to make for a smooth transition, so I guess that's kind of a lose lose recommendation on my part. But you know I think that there has that has become custom where that presidents sort of stay out of politics. Of course that that is something that's been broken right now because people generally view it as extraordinary circumstances. But in the last several decades, generally presidents are advised to stay out of it and to be private citizens and write books and teach and do those kinds of things. And that is what is remembered well and, and viewed fondly. Being a post president is, I think, a really, really tricky job. And there are so few people that are experienced in it. You can't really. that's a very small club.
1: Lindsay Travinsky is the author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. She's also a senior fellow at the International Center for Jefferson Studies.
3: We're going to change the channel now to sports. Every season, no matter the sport always comes to an end, whether you win the big game or endure a heartbreaking loss.
7: And you have to be able to handle the outcome either way. Tony Bennett is the coach
3: for the men's basketball team at the University of Virginia. He's been the coach of the Cavaliers for 11 years. Before that, he coached at a couple of other universities and played professionally for the Charlotte Hornets in the early 1990s. So that's all to say, Coach Bennett has been dealing with wins and losses for a while now.
7: We always say, you know, you have to be able to kind of treat success and failure as imposters or winning and losing and and deal with them in certain, certainly the same way. And that's why you hear so many business leaders, coaches, teachers, whoever, talk about a process-oriented approach. You know, you, you can't always control the outcome, but, you know, you can control the process and the ability to to be in the moment and enjoy the process. Most um, why always talk about the joy of competition and, um, you know, celebrating that, but there's a process that leads up to it.
3: Coach Bennett also knows a thing or two about big finales, both good and bad. In 2018, the Cavaliers entered the NCAA tournament as a number one seed, but they lost in the first round of the tournament, something that had never happened before, to a number one seeded team. The next year though, the Cavs bounced back in a big way and won the NCAA national championship. And now this year's season delivered its own share of dramatic finale. In March, the NCAA decided to cancel the remainder of the basketball season due to COVID-19. So I asked coach Bennett, what was it like to lose out on a chance to finish this year's season,
7: well, maybe this is selfish, but I, I thought about this a lot. Like, if this would have happened last year with the group we had, you know, I, I just I put myself in that spot. With here we had lost to UMBC, we were, you know had a good year, and we really wanted to get another chance at the NCAA tournament. And if this announcement would have been a year previous, I said, "Oh my gosh!" You know, I, I kind of dwell on that and I think about how it affected. There were some really good teams, the Dayton's, um, San Diego State's kind of teams that you just get that only come along once and so often. And when you get the news that it ends, it's heartbreaking. Now, for us, you know, I look at our we we had won the national championship the previous year and that team was pretty much gone. But I was excited because we had won I had eight or nine games or 10 of our last 11. We were really trending. We were healthy going to the tournament. So there's so much excitement all right, ACC tournament and then the NCAA tournament. And with our experience, there was, again, that eager optimism. And so when we heard that it was canceled, never has this happened in sports, obviously. Um, and it was different. You didn't even get the chance to compete. You know, it was just you um, you didn't lose. You just it was taken out of your hands. And sometimes it's a little easier to deal with it if, hey, we lost. So um, when it happened, I made a certain effort. We're going to celebrate these guys that have been here for four years, five years, our seniors, our fourth years, fifth years, and uh, celebrate what they did and celebrate the season. And we tried to enjoy it and do things different than dwell on like this, just getting ripped away from us. So that that was our approach. And um, we even did a few specific things, but it it was as unique an experience in the sporting world as, as I've had. Could you
3: give me an example of one of the things you did to celebrate this current season that ended abruptly?
7: Well, yeah, we, a couple things, but one, we were in the, um, the UNC Greensboro. um, We were having a walkthrough because we were supposed to play that evening against Notre Dame. And then the announcement came and uh, I decided, I said, well, fellas, there's not going to be a, you know, ACC conference tournament championship, they just canceled the tournament. We were kind of thought something like that might happen. I said, but we're going to we're gonna leave here with one. So we played a – there's a game in basketball called Knockout or Lightning. It's just like a – sure. sure, I've lost many of those. <laughs> you know it well then. So we said, come on, and we got our, our trainer, Ethan Saliba. We've got all of our managers, all of our coaches, the whole team. And we lined up, and we said – we're going to have an ACC tournament knockout champion. So <laughs> so we just kind of you know, hooted and hollered. And, you know, you got everybody trying to knock each other out. And we came up with a championship. We did some kind of cool ball handling. Like I just tried to really make light of it and celebrate that part of it, have some fun. And I think one of the most meaningful things we did is we were riding on the bus ride home, and then we got the announcement that the NCAA tournament was going to be canceled. And that was even a little – more severe because or it was more severe because you're thinking whoa so when we got home we talked about it in the locker room but we did this exercise we do with each player called the chair exercise and basically we've done it with each player we ask them three questions tell us who your hero is tell us a hardship in your life and tell us a highlight and they answer those and then after we have each player and each coach we just say all right you're we open it up for questions and it was kind of a really special way in my opinion to just it was basketball related, but like, we're even learning more about your life and what's going on. And that's how we chose to end the season Um, in that way, as opposed to just, you know, passing around the Kleenex box and, Oh, what was me? And (laughs) I mean, sure you feel those things, but I said, not, let's be, have a, you know, a concentrated effort to just do something that might for these guys that they might remember and you can maybe point them to that when hard things happen or unexpected things happen. Like, you you got a choice how you're going to handle it.
3: Okay, Coach. Now we've got to approach the elephant in the room, a season that ends suddenly and unexpectedly, uh, to be blunt about it. And, of course, we're talking about 2018 and the number one seeded UVA Cavaliers getting knocked out in the first round in March Madness. Take us there, tell us your thoughts.
7: Sure. I have no recollection of that. So what, what are you talking about again? <laughs> uh, no. I it was um, you know, there's a lot of that game, the never have there has there been at that point a, a one seed to lose. We have been in that game really well, four times. We've been a one seed, which has just obviously been great, but but you just you know going in. That's uh, a different kind of feeling. So when you make history as we've talked about on the wrong side, it it is um you know, when you, you see things that you maybe perhaps didn't think when you know your your team after that gets death threats and you gotta take them, you know, through the 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 different the service entrance elevators and and unmarked police um, officers I, have I to walk it. into the room because we lost a basketball game. Yes, is a significant one. You kinda in your mind you're like how are these guys processing this? What does this say about perspective and how things are? And, um, and then you're dealing with your own, just like, Oh, you just, you, you just feel things losses. Uh, Oh, they, they sting and they hurt. But, uh, again, like I said, you always have a choice how you're going to deal with it and what direction you're going to take. Do you remember what you did the next morning? I sure did. Um, you know, I, I, I just, you know, obviously we sat together. Uh, well, what, you know, we came, had our breakfast and we were going to have to get, we were in Charlotte. So we bust back to Charlottesville. But uh, after they ate, we came together and there was, you, you know, everybody's heads were hanging. And, you know, we knew the significance of it. They all, I don't have a social media account, but they probably were experiencing so many things and didn't sleep well. But I told them, um, I remember I tried to give the message to the team and I meant it. I said, you've got one of the most unique opportunities. I said, if you, doesn't mean you don't feel things and you're not going to hurt and struggle, but I said, if you can somehow show the people that matter to you, that look up to you, that love you, that, yeah, I'm hurting, but I'm okay. When you can show your little brother or sister or friends or even your parents that this sucks and, oh, but I'm going to be okay and somehow I'm going to figure out a way to to grow from this. And yeah, I'll mourn a little bit, but I'm going to have a perspective. I said, you have no idea the power in that. And that was the message I kept saying to those guys and said, do you understand it? And, um, and was trying to be so intentional about that because you can wallow in self pity and it can take you to dark places and you got to go through those, but it's just, it, it's I worried about that because again, no one had ever experienced it. Again, in college basketball, and we're not talking life and death, we're not talking significant things beyond it, but in the sport and in your own perception and your own mind, especially younger people that hadn't experienced that, it's a lot. So that that was the message to them and acknowledge that this is gonna this is gonna sting, but we're in control and, and you know it was it was even intentional right from the moment. We had to go to the podium. I took Ty Jerome, and Kyle guy, and I said – and I didn't let the seniors – you know, talk about it was Devin Hall and Isaiah Wilkins at the time. Usually the old the seniors go to the podium after, uh, you know, the last game. And I said, this is a way to honor those guys because of what they've given. You two young guys who are sophomores at the time, I said, we're going in there. Here's why we're going to sit in front of the media and answer all these questions, and millions of people are going to be watching. You know, they're going to say, well, what are they going to say? They just – you know, lost this game. I said you're honoring your your guys be- before you, and I said, and it's gonna sting. And I said, it's it's the next step and what we're gonna be about. I said this is gonna make us better. And I don't think they understood it at the time, but they they do now. Well, it must have been a pretty powerful message
3: because, of course, next year you won it all. But before we get to that glorious moment. I want to ask you how you felt when you got to the first round
7: next year. Yeah. No, we were down 14 points against Gardner Webb. Here we were a one seed. We had a great year. We had to answer that question over and over all year, you know, great. But what about when you get to the tournament? All leading up to it with all the media sessions was all about, you know, here's your chance to redeem. And then bang, you find yourself, almost in a worse spot, you know, and you could feel the same feelings. You could feel the arena. You could feel the crowd turning. You could almost feel the blood, like just that feeling. And I remember because we experienced that the year before, I was like, I got to use that somehow. The way I dealt with them at halftime, the way I even told my coaches how we're going to deal with them. But unless you go through that, and I believe that set us up because we handled that pressure, which was the most pressure I've been a part of um for a team to face I think that not only the year before but that moment against Gardner-Webb and, and finishing that game and winning it the rest of the tournament and it I think it's it speaks for itself we were in so many pressure situations but it was not the same and I think that prepared us to to keep our poise against you know Oregon Purdue Auburn and then in the national championship game because of that first half that halftime and having to just steady yourselves when you felt it all coming back. So I think it was a significant moment that as I'd never want to go through it again, and who knows, but I think it was necessary for us to win it all. So
3: tell me how it felt when you won it all.
7: I mean, you know, it was um, my first, uh, I guess I couldn't believe the journey. My first experience was I literally, someone took a picture and I have a, I just bowed my head and I just said, thank you, Lord. I'm humbled. I don't deserve this. I really felt that way. I couldn't I couldn't believe it. And I, I joked. And I said, you know, it's funny. It's the exact same thing I did after we lost to UMBC. I bowed my head and I said, I'm humbled, Lord. I don't deserve this. What the heck's going on? And so it, it, was, it was the uh, the converse of that, you know, after. But it, it was an overwhelming feeling, Brian, of I, I don't deserve this. This is so humbling. I can't believe the journey because... I don't believe, and who can ever say, without that loss, that painful ending, I don't think we would have gotten as close as a team, worked as hard, and been able to handle it and go win it that next year. And it almost makes it sweeter in a, in a twisted way, right? You know what sure. that.
3: Okay, Coach. Leaving the national championship aside, what is the most memorable finale in any genre in your life? It could be the last episode of a television show. It could be sports, of course. What, what is the most memorable finale in your life aside from yeah. the national championship?
7: Well, my kids have, for about the fifth time in a row, watched the office. So maybe the finale of the office, they can't get enough of that. So that's theirs. But no, for mine, um, as you were asking that question, the most significant finale in my life, you know, personally, um, and, you know, again, I guess from a sports standpoint, it was, um, when I knew I was done playing the game, uh, of basketball, that was significant because I had played professionally and I knew I couldn't go on anymore. I just didn't, my body couldn't. And that was, um, that was humbling in itself. So that was pretty significant.
3: I apologize if I'm getting too personal, but how did you know? When did you know? When did you know it? You'll laugh, but I remember when I decided I have to stop playing, you know, half court basketball in the gym at UVA. (laughs) I just, my body just couldn't take it.
7: Yeah, I, my story is a little unique. I had played for three years in the NBA and had a, a surgery, so I decided to go overseas to get back in shape and see if I could, um, you know, make a return. And I just physically, I think I had beat up my body so much, and you know, I some people are blessed they can play forever. I just knew I can't do this at the level <laughs> to play, and I knew my time was done. And I remember that was like you know, I was one of those obsessive kids. I played from little on up, played, dreamed, had dreams, spent more time. My father was a coach. And I just remember kind of like basically deciding that like any, any career that ends, that's a lot. Cause you're stepping into a realm of great uncertainty. I didn't know if I wanted to coach. Yep. Actually, that was the kind of the last thing I wanted to do. Cause I saw go, my family do it. My dad, my sister, I'm like, they're nuts. That's too much of a roller coaster. And so I was kind of like, okay, what am I going to do? I just been, you know, we were fairly newly married and that was that was emotional. I remember like that was I had a heavy heart. But, you know, time heals all those things and you have a perspective. And of course, I haven't lost too many people in my life. I mean, obviously that when you when you see someone pass um, would be, you know, the most significant. But the um, I think just that career, because that was where everything was.
3: Well, it pains me to bring this interview to an end, but you've taught me that um, even very good things have to end. So, I'm going to say goodbye and thank you so much for joining us on Backstory.
7: Um, Brian, thank you. And I always quote this proverb, and it says this: "A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul." And obviously, for the years you guys have been doing, you know, your show. Um, you've accomplished something great. And I think that's a, it it is sweet to the soul. And as you said, all good things come to an end. So, um, thanks for having me on and, and congratulations and, and what a, what a journey you guys have had and just informing people. So thanks for letting me be part of one of your last
2: shows. It's safe to say that if finales are important, so too are the social and cultural contexts in which they take place. After all, these things don't happen in a vacuum. We're recording this final episode in the summer of 2020, arguably one of our most historic in recent memory. America is undergoing a racial reckoning. It's marked by civic debates and public protests on a scale that eclipses even what we saw in the 1960s. This country was founded on slavery and institutional racism. It's at the root of everything, from our founding documents to our beauty standards, to whose life is and isn't considered valuable. And across the country, Black Americans and their comrades in this struggle have risen up. But this moment represents just one chapter in a longer, ongoing story of Black liberation. And today, I want to flip back to an earlier chapter in this story, about a little-known event that took place in Gary, Indiana, one that some say led to the election of Barack Obama, but also likely ushered in the finale of the Black Power movement. To tell this story, we have to start in the mid-1960s. Black Americans had defeated racial segregation and secured the right to vote through major pieces of federal legislation. The number of Black elected officials was rising across the country, but by the end of the decade, some observers had begun discerning a sharp split between more mainstream integrationist Black leaders, like politicians in the newly formed Congressional Black Caucus, and the radical leaders of the Black Power movement, represented by folks like the poet Amiri Baraka. The
8: nationalists must be the spine to the Black nation not some kind of weird projection off the side of his head going off at a right angle. The nationalist must be the spine of the body of the Black nation. What the nation does, the Nationalists must make him do a little better, a little faster. If it's slow, it's because we slow. In
2: 1970, Kenneth Gibson became the first Black mayor of Baraka's hometown of Newark, New Jersey. Baraka, another Black Nationalist, wanted Newark to be a model of black power throughout the country.
8: In Newark, when we greet each other on the street, we say, what time is it? We always say, it's nation time. We say, what's gonna happen? say, land is gonna change hands. Say, what time is it? Nation time, and what's gonna happen? The land's gonna change hands. Now you think about that. That's what it's about. Nationalism is about land and nation a way of life trying to free itself. So the next time somebody asks you what time is it, you tell them
0: it's nation time, brother. You know, Black people beginning to be, feel proud of themselves, beginning to value Black institutions,
2: and beginning to value things that they own and operate. This is Leonard Moore, professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. He says that Black power was about self-reliance, a call for Black people to come together and do things for themselves.
0: You think about LA, Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, Philly, you know, these people were integrated in theory and they had the right to vote. So for them, there were, no, there, were no, there were no legal barriers. To them, there was a lot of structural stuff. And they thought that the best way to handle that is not necessarily to demand anything out of white people, but in many ways to build up their own institutions and to build up their own community.
2: In the end, the mayor of Newark wasn't radical enough for Baraka's taste. Many Black nationalists believe Black elected officials used Black power to get elected, but then distanced themselves from the movement once they were in office.
0: Many of the so-called Black nationalists were very critical of Black elected officials. You know, and I remember, you know, uh, I think it was Clay out of Missouri, uh, I think Congressman Clay out of Missouri, somebody said, you know, Amiri Baraka can criticize me all he want, but, you know, but I was elected from an all-black district by about 300,000 black people. So the argument that the representatives would make is that they were representative of the community. I, I was
2: elected by all-black people, so there's no way you can, you can question my blackness. This infighting was becoming a problem for black political progress. Young black men were dying on the front lines in Vietnam, not to mention in neighborhoods across America. Nixon was refusing to listen to the concerns of the Congressional Black Caucus. In his 1972 presidential run, Nixon attempted an incredible balancing act, and it seemed to be working. He used racial code words like welfare and silent majority to appeal to white voters. At the same time, he campaigned on a narrow, apolitical vision of Black power, one only committed to Black capitalism.
0: Um, you know, he's, 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 he's a he's a he's an Orange County guy. You know, he's bringing in this branch of law and order, this deep conservative right wing conservatism. And so I think people realize that, hey, the movement needs to come together and strategize because they couldn't tolerate another four years, four years of Nixon.
2: It seemed clear. Black elected officials and black nationalists needed each other. And Ameri Baraka believed that these two camps had to create a united front to maintain the political gains of the previous decade.
8: What we have to look for is the easiest point at which we do merge, at which there is some real communion. And that's following to a certain extent what Malcolm X said when he talked about the unity of groups and that uh, the strength of the Black community would come when we learn to put aside our petty differences, our petty sovereignties, and transcend those kind of petty concerns to reach a a stronger kind of unity.
2: The plan was to convene Black leaders from across the country at a national Black political convention, co-sponsored by the Congressional Black Caucus. Baraka said it would be a chance to practice unity without conformity. The convention took two years to plan. Organizers needed to find a city that could accommodate thousands of politically engaged Black people. Gary Indiana Mayor Richard Hatcher was one of the first Black mayors of a major American city. He offered to host the conference. And when the big weekend finally rolled around, 10,000 people showed up.
0: Nathan, this is, <laughs> this convention is the most amazing thing I've ever read about. You know, uh, Gary didn't have any big hotels. You know, they, they have this convention basically at Gary Westside high school. They, the convention started Friday evening, but they couldn't even set up for the convention until school was over on Friday. Cause the students had to get home. Um, but you know, you come into the city, uh, G- uh, Richard Hatchett is mayor's red, black and green stuff all over the city And Ben Chavis talks about how, when they drove into the Aguirre city limits, there was just, it was just an electric atmosphere.
8: The convention will come to order. The co-chairman who will chair today's session, Amamu Amiri Baraka, the chairman of the Congress of African People.
2: Some
0: people wearing dashiki, some sisters wearing naturals, other people wearing locks. But then you had the corporate brothers and sisters wearing suits. you know what I mean? So you had all the diversity of black life, you know what I'm saying, but everybody's there together, you know, trying to minimize their differences and try to get, uh, you know, like I said, get on a common accord uh, to, you know to
2: create sort of a black agenda. Moore says it was the first time that almost every facet of the movement was present under one roof. There were integrationists, nationalists, Democrats, Republicans, students, capitalists, and feminists, Marxists, pastors, athletes, gangsters, labor leaders, community activists. And although the sense of camaraderie was a success, the actual business of the convention was less successful. To think that we
0: could come together over three days and plot out a strategy for 25 million black folk, you know, it's just ambitious. But you see issues from the start.
2: Many nationalists wanted to break from the Democrats to form an all black political party. And that was something that black elected officials just couldn't agree to. You know, uh,
0: I got the Democratic Party support, me, I got some white support. No, I want to maintain my congressional seat. You know what I mean? Because I'm doing tangible things for my community and I don't want to get caught up with these rabble rousers in many ways who had no practical program
2: of Black liberation. If you read the convention's preamble or any other resolutions, it seemed like the Black nationalists won the day. But after the weekend was over, many Black elected officials distanced themselves from the convention and declined to participate in follow-up events to ratify a Black agenda. And while the Black nationalists remained influential, their revolutionary rhetoric didn't always translate into material gains for most Black Americans.
0: While I might, you know, hear, uh, enjoy hearing Huey Newton speak or Bobby Seale talk about the police, yeah, but I'm not really trying to overthrow the government. You know what I'm saying? And 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 that's the thing that I think the Nationals didn't realize that Black folk we have jo- always we, we we believe in that Constitution. We believe in what it says. And we just always wanted America to be true on paper, um, as MLK said. And so over time, um, the the biggest thing that Black nationalists can do for the Black community is largely, I would say, is largely symbolic.
2: Moore says the Gary Convention was the finale for Black nationalism as a viable political force. By the mid-1970s, Amiri Baraka had distanced himself from the movement, and almost all the major black power organizations had fallen apart. But the Gary Convention was also the beginning of something for a lot of people. It inspired tens of thousands of black folk over the next 10 years to run for political office at the local and state level. So although the convention focused on politics at the national level,
0: you know, you got brothers and sisters going back home, you know, running, running for sheriff, constable's office, city council, school board member. And I think what it is sort of, it, the, the, so the convention sort of launches this black political culture, which I argue led to the eventual
2: election of uh, Barack Hussein Obama. Mm, mm. So, so for you, the, 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 the 72 convention in Gary is significant because it set black America on a particular course Absolutely. There can be no no
0: mystery about that. So when people talk about the failure of Gary to uh, to get black folks to coalesce around a common agenda, nobody argues with the fact that the Gary Convention in many ways was the zenith um, of the black freedom struggle, because now there's a collective effort. Now we're moving into the political arena. Now, the problem is 50 years later, Nathan, is that black Americans, by and large, we no longer look at um, voting as a key to Black liberation. So I think we're in a very unique period now, particularly in 2020. But that was the the sentiment in 1972 was, once we get people in office, we'll
2: we'll be on our way. As Moore just mentioned there, there's widespread disillusionment right now about the state of electoral politics. But just as 1972 was the end of one thing and the beginning of another, He thinks a new generation of Black activists might be on to something big.
0: We have reproduced these these political elite structures in the Black community where we have congressional districts basically just being handed down to people who haven't earned it. And one of my frustrations with the the existing caucus, and, and this may sound bad, and I don't want to come across as disrespecting my elders, but quite frankly, some of those people have been there for decades and it's time for them to go, you know? Um, I respect John Lewis, but we have to move on from Selma. Selma was 55 years ago. You know what I mean? And we have to move on and, and what encourage what, what I like about this younger generation is that they are courageous, that they are brave. And I think you know I think, I think that the younger generation is making, you know people in my generation we're embarrassed because I don't think we had the courage nor the tenacity to really challenge the power structure like they have.
2: Leonard Moore is professor of American history at the University of Texas at Austin, and the author of The Defeat of Black Power, Civil Rights, and the National Black Political Convention of 1972.
4: So throughout the history of the show, the thing that we've all looked forward to is just making stuff up. We we call it the riff, right? But what it means is that we're just kind of unharnessed. We can say anything. Of course, they can always edit out what we say, but it creates the illusion in time. And there's been no host of backstory who is a greater advocate for riffage than our friend Peter Onuf. And so Peter, for the finale, has decided that he would like to. Say a word in his own kind of riff.
9: Hey, guys, guess who's here? Hey, didn't we have a blast with the past? Well, I am a blast from the past, and we're all about to be in the past. But we'll be archivally immortal. It's been so much fun working with you, the older generation. I think of us as the founders of the show, Ed and Brian. We're the old guys as we fade away. And founders, what was our original intention? I can't really remember, and founders is supposed to have intentions. I thought it was just to have fun. But you know, I have to admit, I think we did more than have fun. Of course, we had a lot of that. We did some good work, and I'm proud to be part of it. Joanne Nathan, you got a wonderful future ahead of you. You've got enough worlds, but you got to get a few more before you join us in backstory Heaven. Guys, it has been a real honor to work on this show. You're wonderful people. I love you.
3: As usual, Peter has left us all speechless. (laughs) I'm just going to turn to people who have a future ahead of them. Joanne or Nathan, tell us what's in store
2: on this finale show.
1: You, you've you got the, the most feature ahead of you, Nathan, so you go first. Oh
2: my goodness gracious, <laughs> what a setup. Um, no, I mean, you know, th- this has been um, an, an extraordinary uh, experience, and I think one of the things that we as uh, scholars have been figuring out for a long time, frankly, is how to have really great storybook endings. Um, and histor- historians in, in, in a lot of ways, we don't like things that are wrapped up in a bow. We like to kind of leave complexity and ambiguity on the table and just kind of step away with all the Lego pieces scattered everywhere, right? Just drop, um, the <laughs> drop the mic. Drop the mic. But I think it, ha- it has been important to just stop for a moment and, and say that ending requires its own attention and time. And so uh, I, I have been absolutely... Um, immensely rewarded in my my time kind of wrapping up segments and interviews and shows and topics with all of you Um, and and in some ways I I think historians are probably best suited for telling us what we should expect in the future because we've seen how how so many other things in fact end and sometimes don't end but certainly come to some kind of a conclusion Uh, so I'm happy to be a part of that that company this company
1: you know I will say um One of the joys of working on this show has been probably the part I thought least about when I joined it. And that was to get together and basically learn from each other and and be in that moment and see what we came up with as a group. That was an amazing experience. And it was not the same thing as a classroom experience. It was not the same thing as a conference experience. It was a group of targeted friends with the same kinds of passions trying to help each other get ahead to a further point in their understanding and then to help the viewers get there with them. That, to me, has been the greatest joy of the program, and that, to me, is something that isn't going to end. It might not be backstory that's helping us or helping you, the listener, get there, but It's one of the joys of learning. And I think that's been one of the special things about Backstory.
4: So Brian, one of our secrets is is I'm a little bit older than you, so you have to go next.
3: Well, I have to say, Ed, when you came to me and said, you know, I got a great idea. It actually isn't my idea. You blame somebody else for it. (laughs) But you said, what about a show about history, where every week, we talk for an hour about history. That just seemed like the most ridiculous idea that I'd ever heard. And um, it's really only in the last couple of years that it occurred to me the reason I went to graduate school to get a PhD in history, starting at age 30, which was a dumb thing in the first place, the reason I did it is I wanted to work on something my whole life that I would never figure out. Mm-hmm. And as all of my hosts, co-hosts can attest to, I haven't figured it out. I haven't even come any closer and I've always hated that expression. It's the journey, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I it just, but weekly getting together with you guys and trying to figure it out and, never quite figuring it out. And then hearing from our listeners, um, either on call-ins or, you know, you, the listeners forced me to learn how to use social media, hearing what you have to say. uh, You guys helping us figure it out, our producers, our technical people helping us figure out how to even broadcast and then podcast. It's, it's everything that I hoped for when I went to graduate school in terms of working on a life's project, never figuring it out, but truly enjoying the process of trying.
4: All of you guys are good, and I knew it was a mistake to go last. I should have factored that into my manipulative strategy to this thing. But as the oldest person here, I will use my seniority to wrap up at least my own perspective on it. The thing is, is that I've discovered making the show that history has no finale. It has no boundaries. It has no edges. If you told us at the beginning in that absurd conversation that Brian and I had, uh, hey, here's the idea. For every week for 12 years, you're going to find something new (laughs) about American history to talk about for an hour. Um, That would have seemed completely preposterous. And yet we have. There is no exhausting American history. There is no edge or boundary to it. And one of the glories of doing this for over a decade is that the field itself is just proliferating with new perspectives, new people. There's so much wonderful new talent. And things that you think might be settled turn out not to be. And that turns out to be a good thing. It turns out, too, that history doesn't have an edge in the people who are interested in it. We've talked to people all the way from children to people even older than Peter and Brian, Uh, that people are interested in all kinds of subjects that they didn't think they were interested in. One of the things I'm proud of, is that we kind of persuaded people, really, come on, listen to this episode too. I know you think you're not interested in it, or there can't actually be a history of the color green. So the idea that you cannot exhaust American history. Sometimes we exhausted ourselves, and sometimes exhausted our listeners. But the fact is, is that American history will always require rethinking, reimagining, and further conversation. So, for me, this has been kind of an opening of the door of what history could be in so many ways. And I don't feel like that door is closing behind me. I feel like I'm going to take what I learned here, try to find new places to connect with people. And uh, it's going to be one of the many great gifts of all this. So when we began the show, there was really nothing remotely like it. Uh, We're doing on NPR, then podcasting. Now there's lots of podcasts. Now lots of people have seen Mm -hmm, how great mm -hmm. it is to have this combination of intimate conversation and broad reach. So there are other people making other podcasts now. Uh, What advice would you give them?
2: Um, I think for for me, as somebody who was just new to this, um, we spent a, a, a lot of time, particularly in, in the conversion, from a, a, an NPR sound that had a lot of polish to it um, to something that wound up feeling you know much more unvarnished. and And it's interesting that backstory, by virtue of historical events now looks and feels a lot like much you know more streamlined smaller scale podcasts right we're all in our own individual rooms and closets and and kind of that that that, that sound is actually one that it may be the sound of the future in a lot of ways um, i mean i've i've been so, so heartened to see, frankly, people being able to do history podcasting, you know, with one person and a microphone now, I mean, and being able to reach, you know, a large audience. And so um, that means that in a lot of ways, the, the richness of the work is going to continue to grow. And, and if there is any advice in any of that, is to have fun with the form. I think we had a lot of fun with it. And we didn't try to have things sound canned, I think quite the opposite. Um, and so if, if you, as long as you're not invested and creating something that sounds too overproduced, I think you can actually do something pretty incredible.
1: I, I wanna add to that because um, I think one of the things that, that the show drove home for me, and it's related to what Nathan just said, um, is that historians can sound just like themselves and can react in the moment to what they're talking about and can make jokes and can be silly and can use their own self as part of what they're communicating. And I, I think when people tend to think whether it's about um, podcasts or radio programs, I think as Nathan said, there's a, a tendency to want it to be really polished, but I think that's part of what we really had going for us was, was I guess this is gonna come out wrong. We weren't polished. <laughs> we, were, we were a little rough and ready in a good way. Mm. Um, it just shows how unpolished we are that you would say something like that. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one there. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I I think I would say, um, and I suppose in a way, now that as Nathan said, everyone could sit in their living room with a microphone and a computer, and <laughs> poof, they have a webinar or a podcast. That message might be driven home in a way that it now it doesn't even need to be mentioned. But um, I think history, when p- a lot of people think about history, they think about people pontificating about capital G great, capital T, thoughts, you know, Mm -hmm. have great thoughts. And I think this show um, shows that you can have great thoughts on a human level Mm -hmm. in a way that matters. And I guess that's what I would urge, if it's advice of any kind, people not to forget. Hmm. And and I'd just add, since
3: uh, both of you kind of referred to people sitting at home with a microphone, for me, it's, been always about the exchange, the interchange i can't imagine doing something like this by myself, and mm-hmm. i I think that you know when backstory has managed to sing it's sounded like a choir, uh, not like a solo mm-hmm. performance and mm-hmm. this kind of riff is one example, but interviewing our guests and that moment when they actually get down to discoveries they've made, if they're scholars or experiences they've had, if they're what (laughs) I fondly call the real people on the show. It's been that interaction that I think really distinguishes an intimate medium like podcasting.
4: You know, I'd I'd like to encourage everybody at the same time I'm honest with them. The amount of work that Mm. goes behind this unpolished surface (laughs) is enormous. We, in many ways, got to do the fun part of talking, whereas other people were stitching together our comments into these really beautifully produced shows that, you know, they have the spontaneity that Nathan and Joanne are talking about, um, but they are not awkward. Uh, They, they, Repay the time of the listener. So, you know, the choir that Brian's talking about has a a giant orchestra (laughs) as well that's making it work.
1: Can can I add to that with, um, it was a little episode in in an episode that was a while back um, that I don't know if you guys remember, but I do because it um, captured for me how much in the moment we are and how much we're learning from each other in this podcast. And it was the episode where we talked about hair, right? So first of all, quirky topic, <laughs> let's talk about hair. And we talked about hair and race, and we talked about gender, and we talked about generational hair, um, and, and you know, hair as remembrances and a whole variety of things. But we, in the riff for that episode, I mentioned about being a woman and having your hair mean something very particular. And I talked mm-hmm. about giving a lecture and finishing the lecture and having a man uh, from the audience come up and, and tell me how I should wear my hair. That, right. That, right. And what I remember about that was <laughs> you guys gasped. What I heard was, <gasps> and that made me, that stunned me because it mm-hmm. made me realize the degree to which that was not something that was apparent to you guys. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was such a little tiny, but t- to me really memorable moment in which like in a flash of a second we all got something from each other
2: one thing that i think is a real durable kind of takeaway um is how much i've been changed by this process um of making a show of, of being part of something that you know has been built that has been so regular um, i know we're in a moment now where you know everyone is kind of in a predisposition to, in some ways, piggybacking right on Joanne's comment, to, to make a, a comment or to critique somebody, right? To, to make an observation, oftentimes of a very personal nature. And I think I became, over the last several years, very tuned in and very sensitive to just what's involved um, in making something that and, and making something that is meant to last, you know, to, to Ed's point. Um, you know, I, I, we are in a, a moment now where a lot of people are going to be trying to make a new world new platforms new institutions and i think you know any bit of humility and grace um and kindness that we can show to each other in the making would also do us a whole lot of good because i think just to to echo what's been said most people don't see the process, they don't think about it, they don't give it a lot of thought, but they immediately have an opinion about what should be there. And it, being on backstory and, and seeing, you know, as the old saying goes, how the sausage is made, you know, kind of thing. Um, you know, it, it's been extraordinarily um, humbling and edifying for me as, as part of this team. And I'm, I'm immensely proud of what we've been able to do. I'm immensely proud of what was handed to, to, to Joanne and I. And, and frankly, I'm very proud of the archive that we've left as as part of this backstory experience.
1: I want to say too, because I'll kick myself if I don't, that I'm very proud of what we've done and I've loved working with you guys. Well, thank you, you, Joanne. Thank you, Nathan. And thank you, Ed.
3: And I know you won't believe it, but I have one last thing to say, I promise. <laughs> see that? Let, please see, let see it be a pun. the kind of respect I
9: get?
2: Please
3: let uh, it one, be
9: a
2: pun. <laughs> one last thing I have to say,
3: which is to all three of you, don't be a stranger.
2: So thank you. Thank you to the scholars who graciously shared their research, time, and insights with us.
1: Thank you to the hosts and guest hosts. And thank you to contributors who introduced us to new topics and new ways of thinking.
4: Thank you to producers, editors, digital strategists, researchers, and voice actors, past and present, who helped create, publish, and distribute episode after episode, week after week.
3: Thank you to technical directors and audio engineers who helped make the magic of radio
2: and later podcasting happen. Thank you to the custodians and caretakers who made sure we had comfortable offices to work in and studios in which to record.
1: Thank you to Virginia Humanities, an anonymous donor, National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, the University of Virginia, the Johns Hopkins University, the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, the Tomato Fund, and all the other agencies that have supported the show for over a decade.
4: Thank you to the teachers and educators who shared backstory in their classrooms.
2: And lastly, thank you, the listener. Thank you for not only tuning in and posting on social media, but for your support, your encouragement, and your feedback.
1: We have loved
4: talking
3: about history with you
4: and we hope you'll keep the conversation going.
3: Because more than anything else, Backstory has been dedicated to the fact that history matters. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.